today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Despite repeated assurances from the Ford government that the province would be ready to handle the second wave of the pandemic, a key provincial agency is now warning hospitals in the gray lockdown or red control zones to be prepared to implement what they call surge capacity plans within hours. In a memo to hospitals Tuesday evening, Ontario Health CEO Matthew Anderson says the province has hit a critical phase in the pandemic with widespread community transmission of the virus. There are over 900 people hospitalized in Ontario with COVID-19. 250 of them are in ICU with close to 160 others on ventilators. As a result, Anderson says hospitals in gray and red zones under the province's pandemic response framework need to ensure up to 15% of staffed adult acute inpatient beds will be available for COVID-19. 19 patients. The province currently has over 2,100 critical care beds in operation and over 80% of them are now full. Officials with the Ontario Health Association are set to gather for an emergency meeting later today. Darren Boland, Global News. Thanks for that report, Darren. So what kind of an impact is this having? We just talked about uh, patient care in hospitals a couple of minutes ago, and now we're talking about uh, the second wave of the pandemic, seemingly a lot more severe than, well, maybe we're being told by some of the experts. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Michael Warner. Dr. Warner is the head of ICU at the Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Pleasure to be here, Bill. You know, Doctor, I, I can remember talking many, many times with a number of physicians such as yourself uh, back in the springtime about uh, this this pandemic wave and the impact it was having on hospitals, and this was crisis situation. We're not hearing that. The numbers now are being told are even worse than they were in the springtime, uh, yet I'm, I'm not seeing that sense of alarm from our elected officials. Is, is this because they've accepted this as the new normal? Well, I'm not sure um, what, the, what the elected officials are truly feeling or versus what they're displaying, but I can tell you that there's an emergency meeting of the Ontario Hospital Association today, which I, I think was just relayed in the news briefing, yeah. uh, and that kind of tells you what you need to know. And just just for your listeners, I mean, I, uh, the previous reporter's numbers are not entirely accurate, no fault of his, but there are actually 275 patients in Ontario ICUs with COVID-19, and this number of 2,100 beds in ICU, uh, ICU beds in Ontario is, is not an accurate number. That's the number of physical beds, but we can only staff you know, a certain number of beds based on the number of nurses we have. And most ICUs are over 100% capacity in hot zone regions uh, based on their nursing staff availability. So we can't actually staff those extra three or 350 beds that are theoretically in the system because there's no one to take care of those patients. You know, when we saw these stories, and maybe the media coverage and the attitude is different, uh, but, you know, in the first wave, we saw the this manifest itself in the number of hospitals down in the States, and it's happening again with their second wave. Uh, and, and that's what concerns me. We don't seem to have the same level of, of concern about this. Certainly you do, because you're, you're right there. You see this happen on a daily basis. Uh, but we're in a, in a rather precarious situation. I mean, the first wave, doctor, it was, okay, elective surgeries are gone uh, until further notice. We just can't do that right now. Uh, are we at that stage right now? Is that, is that going to be part of the discussion when, with this meeting later on today? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things at play. So I think that people are getting used to numbers that are so big that they can't even wrap their head around. I mean, mm-hmm. more than 2,000 cases a day. If somebody told you that a month or, or two ago, you'd say that, they, that you were crazy. But we've kind of creeped up to almost 2,000. Now we've breached 2,000, which people said would happen, and, and who knows how high it will go. Uh, we're going to breach 283, which is the maximum number of COVID ICU patients we had in wave one. That'll happen in the next day or so. And then we'll hit 300 by Christmas, which will put us on track for over 500 by the first week of January. So uh, let's be clear, elective procedures have been delayed or canceled in certain hot zone hospitals already. And that's happened even weeks ago uh, as demand for beds exceeded supply. And what Mr. Anderson 
Anderson's memo says that all hospitals, not just red and gray, but even hospitals in orange, yellow, and green, the orange, yellow, and green hospitals need to be prepared to implement surge capacity plans, and the ones in red and, and, black and gray need to have them ready to go within a couple of days. And fortunately, hospitals are prepared in that we've been planning for this you know, because we've been seeing it coming down the pike for months, and we have, you know, our our work from wave one to 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 look upon as well to help us in wave two. So we're ready to go, and hospitals work very well together already in every system, including you know the Hamilton, Niagara, London area, uh, in terms of sharing patients and spreading them uh, among hospitals that are have fewer patients in general. So we're ready, but I guess the challenge is that eventually everybody's going to get full, and you know, elective procedures are going to be canceled in a systemic way. And what we want to avoid, and what the government wants to avoid, is, is canceling or delaying non-elective procedures, which could be something we face if the trajectory continues the way it has. How does a plan like this work out? As I say, you've seen this coming. You've already gone through this in the springtime. And uh, as you mentioned, Doctor, the numbers are even worse now than they were back in March and April and May. Uh, how does that manifest itself within the hospital? What, 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 what plan of action has to be undertaken? Well, the challenge with hospitals is we have no control over demand, so we, do, we, can't, we don't close our doors, nor should we, so patients come and they need to be cared for. The, the administrators at hospitals have spent a lot of time in what are called bed meetings, so which patients can go where, and I think the challenge, Bill, is that patients with COVID-19 can't just show up in any bed. Those who are on the ward need to be isolated from the patients who don't have COVID, which means they need their own room, which is hard to come by, especially in older hospitals, or they need to be cohorted with patients who already have COVID. And then in the ICU, for patients on something called high-flow nasal cannula, which are kind of supercharged nasal problems, which we're using as one of our standard therapies for patients with COVID-19 who are very sick but don't need to be intubated, they need a negative pressure room. That's a room where you can close the door and the air is pushed out of the room. Lots of hospitals have a finite supply of those negative pressure rooms, so they're actually not able to care for as many COVID patients in the ICU as they would want. That's why some hospitals, even on Sunday, there's one in the GTA, sent out five patients from their ICU to adjacent hospitals in the GTA because they didn't have enough negative pressure rooms for those patients. So how this manifests in the hospital, lots of meetings, lots of movement. Patients are being moved all over the city among ICUs and among, the, among wards every day now. Um, you know, tens and tens of patients are being moved from, patient, from hospitals that are full to hospitals that have capacity. And patients are being moved out of hospitals to um, ALC or alternative level, level of care facilities where they can be cared for you know, in chronic care facilities um, who have kind of expanded their admission criteria to help offload hospitals who are, that are getting full. And John, I'm thinking about the domino effect here too, Doctor. I mean, you even talk about patient transfers to other hospitals that might be able to accommodate them. That's got to put some pressure on first responders too. I mean, you, can only, you can't be two places at once, can you? It's a really good point, Bill. There's, a, there's only so many critical care transport paramedics. There's, that is a finite supply. There's only so many, so many ambulances, so many very highly trained paramedics who can move critically ill patients. Keep in mind they have to adhere to isolation protocols when these are COVID patients, which they often are, putting themselves at risk. Uh, weather's not so great, and it takes a long time to move these patients. And then you have the patients on the ward who are literally getting taken out of their bed from Hospital A and put into Hospital B because Hospital A has 30 people waiting to be admitted in the emergency department. And that takes you know first responders to do that as well, which could, I guess, theoretically cannibalize their availability for other things, although I haven't heard that yet. But the bottom line is people are really busy, and patients are being moved, which isn't great for patients, and it just emphasizes the fact that you know, as people extend hours at Lyme Ridge Mall, the hospitals are overflowing. Yeah, uh, but, and don't think that those aren't, uh, you know, 
connected in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the more we congregate, the more pressure we put on the hospital situation. And that's a message, uh, Doctor, that I know you've been consistent with right from the beginning on this whole thing here, is that when we talk about this, and I, and I want people to be alarmed by the numbers and the stories you're telling here, but they also have to realize that, look, if you're not following the protocols, you're putting even more pressure on this system. Well, there's, there's, there's individual liberty, which I get. There's also civic responsibility. And I think that people need, need to make decisions that benefit other people, not just themselves. And I think it's challenging because you can't see how the impact of your activities, like going to buy those shoes, could lead to an ICU admission in a hospital 10 kilometers from where you live. There's no straight line relationship or feedback loop for people to see how their actions impact others. But I can tell you, um, you know, lay people, so people who aren't in the healthcare system, might interpret the numbers differently than people who are in the system. They might say, and what's Dr. Warner saying? 275 patients in the ICU, 14.5 million people, what's the big deal? I promise you, it's a big deal. We're not trying to fan the flames of panic unnecessarily. We want to make sure there's capacity for everyone to get the care they need, whether they have COVID or not. With these numbers, can you provide that level of care that, that each one of these patients needs? Right now we can, and uh, as I mentioned, hospitals work really well together. Healthcare workers, especially nurses and respiratory therapists, are extremely dedicated, um, and we will be there for patients no matter what. The situation we want to avoid, and why uh, Mr. Anderson sent that memo, is the situation where we, that they had in Italy, where urgent and emergent care could not be provided to patients and people died. Um, that being said, I think there is an impact of delaying someone's hip operation for months, um, you know, because that means they could be on opioids longer, disabled longer, not be able to, to work as effectively. So we, we can't disadvantage the non-COVID patients the way we're going to have to. Uh, it's just not fair. We already have a significant backlog of surgeries for those patients. Well, and we've already seen those stories. You mentioned the Italian circumstance, but it's happened in some places in the States, too, where they've actually had to triage patients and say, look, at, you know, forget about this individual. This one needs it more. This, that one's just going to have to wait. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to have a doctor or nurse have to make a decision like that, but, you know, numbers are numbers, aren't they? We are not there yet. There are, there, we've been, we are so prepared for this, and so the public should be reassured. We are so prepared for this. We've thought of everything. And we have tools in our toolbox that we can use, but there are lots of things we don't want to have to use, like triage protocols, which we do not have to use now. So um, I really hope, Bill, that it doesn't get even close to us considering that and that we continue to work really well as a healthcare system to move patients among hospitals where there is capacity. And I share that concern and I share that hope too, Doctor, but I thought, you know, when we started hearing about lockdown stories and we started hearing about the pressure on hospitals, that, that maybe people would understand that. And, you know, here we are with another number of over 2,000 new cases uh, here in Ontario. And I, I don't know if people aren't getting the message or just ignoring it, but uh, this, is the, this is the result of it. Well, here's a personal story for your listeners. And, uh, you know, a couple of nights ago, um, a, a family had to watch their mother die on Zoom. And, um, and that's a story that gets repeated in ICUs across the province every day. I can't imagine anything more horrible than not being able to be with your loved one as they take their last breath. But that is the reality in Ontario's hospitals because of COVID-19, the amount of spread. And that's, uh, that, that end-of-life experience should be something that no one has to have. Well, here's hoping that uh, this does resonate with people and we start to see those numbers go down. The pressure is immense, and uh, I, I can't imagine the pressure that, uh, that you and your staff and, and hospitals right across the province are under right now because of this. Uh, and, again, I, I repeat what we just said earlier. I'm sure you heard the story this morning too, Doctor, that uh, uh, the Canadian press has just named uh, frontline health workers as, uh, as the new story of the year. Uh, and you deserve the accolades that you're getting, but I just wish we could ease the pressure on you a little bit. 
you know, all essential workers, especially the ones that don't make as much money as doctors, should really everyone should tip their hat to them. The nurses, the Uber drivers, the clerks at the checkout at the grocery stores, the respiratory therapists, patient care assistants—they're the ones who are the true heroes. So I'm, I'm glad that that recognition was made. Doctor, I know how busy you are. Thank you for taking some time with us, as always. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk about some uh, some good news in in the coming days. I look forward to that day. Take care, Bill. Thanks again, Doctor. Dr. Michael Warner, head of ICU at uh, Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, and pay attention to the numbers. And, and, and as Dr. Warner said, the numbers are actually even worse than are being reported because uh, they're there on the front lines. And, you know, so-called availabilities are not always availabilities. Uh, hospital bed's not any good to anybody if there's nobody there to staff it and look after the person who's going to be in that bed. So we need to keep that in mind, too, as we consider just what's happening here. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.